Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thank you for being with us today. We're trudging on in our podcast. This is like, we're like a thing, man. We're doing things. We're two things. We're two things. Yeah, we're twoists. Don't discriminate. Not oneists. Don't discriminate. I wouldn't. I feel discriminated against. Well, why? You why, do you, why, do you, why do you feel You confined me to a particular thing, man. Like you said, I'm not you, man. Do you feel inferior? I feel like you, you've kind of put me in the corner. What if I want to be you? What if I want to be all? What if I want to be both us and? <laughs> you know, uh, some people don't have an inferiority complex. They really are inferior. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Did I say that? You're not going to be elected governor of Florida or mayor of our city, I don't think. That's true. Um, well, that, some of that is residue from the previous um, podcast. So if you hadn't listened to that, go listen to that. Yeah. In fact, why don't we just not do this one and tell folks to go listen to that one again. Hey, go listen to that one again. You play it again next week. All right. We think you all need to know what we said last week again. Just hear it again. All right. We want to talk about preaching in our first section here. Um, Tom, you've been doing this for a little while. Yeah. You're old. I am old. You've been preached for a long time. I learned from Noah. Why is it important that we preach the Bible? Well, because we're commanded to. I mean, God has ordained to save people through the foolishness of preaching. This is exactly what Paul writes to the Corinthians. You know, it is the uh, foolishness of that which is preached that God uses to save people. It doesn't mean foolish preaching saves people, but the the very act and content of preaching is what God uses to save people. This is fascinating. I mean, God could save people in any number of ways, but he has chosen to do it in a way of a man of God taking the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, to communicate clearly, accurately, and with all the gifts and graces that the Lord has entrusted to him, the things that have been revealed. And mm-hmm. God does that. When, when he owns the preaching that he's ordained in that way, people see Christ, come to Christ, turn from sin, follow Christ. If you could rewind the clock 30-something years and go back to your 30-year-old self about to mount the pulpit in the early days, when it comes to preaching, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to be more mindful of how absolutely dependent I am upon the Spirit of God. Mm. Nothing will happen of any value apart from the Spirit of God being with us. And um, preparation is vital, and uh, God drilled that into me early, but dependence is uh, more vital, recognizing that this is a supernatural event. A little preparation, because back in the day, you used to footnote your sermons, right? <laughs> I did, actually. because I know you. I know back then, preparation's vital. You were footnoting those bad boys, man. Uh, I was. So you were definitely prepared, but that dependency on the Spirit, what a lovely thing. That Spurgeon traveling up the steps of his pulpit saying, yeah. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I Amen. believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that today is still a challenge to remember that because you can fall into the temptation of thinking, I've done this, I know how to do this, there's a rhythm to this, mm. and I fulfill the rhythm and, and forget, that, yeah, unless the Spirit works, this will all be just noise. Mm. Uh, what are some of the challenges to preaching today? Uh, what, in what ways does the minister need courage to preach faithfully today? Well, the, the 
truth of God's word is under attack, and that's always been the case. The world's never been the friend of of Christ or his people. But in our day, we are seeing different moves being made by our culture in ways that has uh, uh, been effective in infiltrating the church. So now from even on the inside of the Christian community, we are being challenged and encouraged to kind of tone down, mm. you know, don't don't be so acerbic, don't be so harsh. And certainly there's no room for personal harshness, mm. but you can hear those accusations and warnings in such a way as to say, well, okay, then I probably shouldn't call homosexual activity an abomination because that would sound harsh to people. And yet that's what God calls it. Mm. And so there is a danger to edit the scriptures, to um, back away, to try to rehabilitate things that are uh, contrary to cultural sensitivities today. And we just can't do that. We got to be men. A pastor's got to be a man of the book. He's got to be a man submitted to the book mm. and be willing to preach the word. I mean, Paul says that so strongly to Timothy in Second Timothy four. Think about this. This is the apostle's last letter that we have in the New Testament. You can just see him there, and knowing. I think he knew that he was going to die. He wasn't going to make it out of this one alive. And so in Second Timothy four. He, he charges Timothy with such strong language. I mean, just stop and consider the way he multiplies the seriousness of the charge before he ever gives it. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Well, that's huge in and of itself right there. But he goes on, who is to judge the living and the dead? So there's going to be a judgment day. And by his appearing and, uh, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So Christ Jesus, God judge who will appear who's king hmm. timothy consider all this preach the word and that is a sober thought so any man who mounts a pulpit any man who takes responsibility to serve a congregation as a shepherd a pastor must have this charge of the apostle paul ringing in his ears we we can't we we <laughs> How presumptuous mm-hmm. to think that we should preach or we can preach anything other than the word mm-hmm. I heard it said recently that uh, any minister who's getting up faithfully and preaching the word uh, today is going to be kicking over idols in every direction. <laughs> I thought, you know, yeah. that was a challenging word because it's easy to get up there and, and you know, um, know there's a big golden calf there. But, hey, let's not talk about the golden calf. Let's talk about something else. And and, right. and, and technically expositing the text and, and, um, and proclaiming that text, even proclaiming that text faithfully, just not dealing with this particular issue that we know is there and needs to be dealt with. That kind of relates to, uh, I think, of um, pastoring a church through proclamation. Sometimes if we think of, if we think of preaching as uh, shooting off a gun, you know, boy, we... we do everything right we load it up and get it all set and then we shoot way over the target you know you Mm -hmm. don't hit the target so when it comes to to application and shepherding a flock through the ministry of the word what are some um, things we need to keep in mind as we seek to ensure that the word we're really um, declaring it to a particular flock yeah that's a great question and it's something that needs to be uh, thought about regularly, you know, that elders ought to be talking about to make sure we're not shooting past our people. Um, I, I think it, it begins with the very reading of the word, to read God's word well. 
audibly, to read it out loud. You, you read the Bible interpretively, and you should try to interpret it accurately as you read it. So taking note of the grammar and the syntax, the relationship of the words, the words that are chosen, uh, where do you give the emphasis, where do you give the pause? I mean, all of those things might seem mundane, but I want to read the Bible in such a way that when people hear the Bible being read, they understand mm-hmm. what is being communicated. And when you do that, you train people to read the Bible for themselves. Same way when you teach it and you preach it, you you want to show what is really there. You know, you don't want to be so creative that people say, man, I never saw that in the text. First time I've ever heard that <laughs> know. before. You know, when people say that, sometimes they think they're complimenting me. and I'm just dying inside. You know? <laughs> they say, you're like, please tell me you're a new believer. Please tell me you're a new believer. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you, you want to... You want to serve the text. You want to take it out um, and set it before the people of God in its context so that they read it. They say, yeah, of course, I see that. I see that. Uh, Application is always a challenge. Uh, One of the things that I do, I learned this from um, the the Puritans and and thinking through categories of people. I think it's um, Charles Bridges does this as well in his book, The Christian Minister. He's got different kinds of hearers in the back of his book. But the Puritans would do this, and they think about different categories of people. Mm-hmm. And so I don't do this all the time anymore, but I have done it in the past where I would actually have faces of people come to my mind as I'm thinking through application. People that I know week in, week out will be sitting in this congregation. There's a widow. Uh, here's a widower. Here's a single adult woman. Here is a, a person who's been divorced. Here's a married couple that's struggling with uh, kids. It seems like they, they're overwhelmed by them. Here's a, child, a couple that can't have kids. And just having those different categories of people in mind so that when I'm trying to understand the text myself and and prepare to explain it in a way that's understandable, I can keep asking, so what? What difference should this make to the people that will hear the word? And and I want to think about unbelievers, too. I don't ever want to assume that everybody gathered Mm -hmm. is a Christian. Mm -hmm. Even those who profess Christ, I don't want to assume all of them are Christian. Yeah, you said something there about people, you know, in your study, you had people come to mind as you're studying the text, these different categories, and there's there's really something to that. This this application part cannot be artificial, you know. Yeah. It, it comes from a shepherd's heart who's spent time with his sheep. Now, if it's a large flock, you understand you can't know everybody the way you might know a small flock, but but being diligent and getting to know people sitting with them through counseling or asking them uh, how we can be praying for them we do that here in our elders meetings send out emails but there i've noticed in my preaching it's a test to see how invested i am uh, heart and mind into this congregation mm-hmm. have i been thinking about you know oh i know that she's got uh, her husband is sick, or I know that, that this this person here just lost a job, and that comes out. It just has a way by by the power of the Spirit. These these applications that can come when you're really invested. So it's a call for us to know the flock. Yeah, absolutely, and that's helpful to have elders who uh, assist in that. And so we do reviews here of uh, our services and preaching, and it's good to get feedback from thoughtful brothers who are responsible for shepherding the flock to say, yeah, you know, I think you missed it here. You had an opportunity here that Mm -hmm. you didn't take, or uh, when you did this, this was really good. This is something we need to be sensitive to. Uh, Those are helpful. Yeah, we continue to point out in a number of ways about the egalitarian mindset that is present among us today, particularly and uh, yet we have an authoritative word. So, yeah. so how do we preach uh, with authority? You know, sometimes you can get 
crossed up on this, you can think that authority means loudness. You know, or you got to shout, or you got to sweat, or you got to pound the pulpit. <laughs> ah, there I'm wiping go. my brow. Don't you see? <laughs> That's right. This is really important because I'm really loud. And uh, it's it's truth through personality. I mean, that's one of the ways preaching has been described. And so everybody's personality is not going to be the same. And, and you can be very quiet. I mean, Lloyd-Jones was intense, but he wasn't uh, overtly demonstrative. But there's no doubt about the note of authority in his preaching. And others can preach with uh, a personality that is more given to being demonstrative and making points. And, and that's fine, too. Neither one of those is either better or worse. That's just human personality. But the, the authority comes from the fact that this is God's word. Mm-hmm. The prophets in the Old Testament said, thus saith the Lord. And as I think it's the Belgic Confession says, the right preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And so we need to understand when we are teaching this and getting it right, this is God speaking. This is not Tom's opinion. These are not my thoughts. These This is truly from God. And so we should preach it like that unapologetically. You know, I hate this attitude that has come into some of the even reform circles in our day mm. that say, you know, well, this is what the Bible says. You know, it's not God's best that you be homosexual. And, you know, the, the Bible says that, that you shouldn't do this. And, you know, I really think it'd be good for you to do it this way. Of course, I could be wrong. Mm. You know, you just leave that door open. No, get it right, say it right, and then call people to respond to what God has actually revealed. Mm-hmm. That's the authority that we're called upon to speak with. Yeah, that pressure is upon us today, and it's easy to kind of um, give in just a little bit. You know? yeah. But we just need to, everybody needs to face up. This is what everybody knows what the church is about. The, for the early preaching in the book of Acts, people have been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority. It is a message from God. And we don't need to do that mean spirited. We don't need to give any kind of handles, you know. But we just need, to, yeah. yeah. This is God's word. We're, there's, there's no. Um, there's no other options. Yeah. You know, it's about to, to the Lord. It doesn't mean being a jerk. You know, yeah, it doesn't mean exactly. being a jerk. doesn't mean being arrogant. I mean, all those things are temptations. We've got to kill those things. But I remember one of Spurgeon's sermons, he was preaching on election, and uh, he's just laying it out there. And he, he obviously senses in the congregation some hesitation or pushback. He says, does this offend you? Then be ye offended even more. And he goes further you know, into it. And where we're standing on God's word, we need to be willing to uh, let that word go forth no matter how offensive it is because this is what God uses to save people. It's not our cleverness. It's not our ability to shade the truth or make it more palatable. It is what God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. If we want people to be saved, we want people to be be right with God, then we have got to get this straight and we've got to tell it as simply and clearly and as persuasively as we can. Here in part two of our podcast, we like to talk about a book that has been impactful uh, for us, and uh, the book that we want to talk about today is a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture by David Murray. David is professor of Old Testament and practical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and uh, this is a good brother. We actually just had David down here not too long ago. Yeah, right after the book came out, actually. He came down here and did a conference, and um, this this book is was very helpful then and has continued to be helpful to me because we really are living in a time um, that is burning out. I mean, you just 
there's always more to do. There's emails, there's notifications. There's, um, I, I recently saw someone with the Apple watch that was notified when to breathe. <laughs> Has it come to that? It's come to that. Hey, notified when to breathe. Psst, psst, you need to take a deep breath. You do take a deep breath and then it tell you when to go to bed. But I don't want to catch a side trail because I will, but the robots are taking over, brother. That's what you need to know. Hey, we, we read this book as elders uh, before we had David down, and uh, and it was beneficial it to was. us as an eldership. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the impact uh, on your life, and maybe we can speak for some of the other guys too? Yeah, well, the, each chapter has a some kind of re, like rethink, um, he talk, he relax. He uses the analogy of a car. You take your car into the shop. And they look under the hood and say, mm-hmm. oh, got to tweak this, got to tweak this. So he talks about repair bays. Yep. Um, I, I'll mention repair bay number seven, Reduce. This was one of the best chapters for me. And this is coming from a guy who's, I think I think I was done with my studies at that point, but um, a lot of kids in, in pastoral ministry. And one of his chapters says, you just have to reduce things. If you're going to really live a grace-based life, you're going to have to learn to say no. And everybody likes that idea. You know, let's say no, let's say no. And then when it comes to really saying no, you're like, <laughs> this is really, I, I mean, because it always seems like a bigger thing than what it is. And, and often it is big things. You don't just have to say no to small things. You have to say no to big things, good right. opportunities, uh, people that you love that want to have you over for dinner and all this stuff. And so he mentions a work paced life and then a spontaneous life and he said you know you want your work your or sorry well-planned life well-planned life and you want like 80 percent of your calendar of your life to be this well-planned life you know what you're going to do and then and then leave this margin for spontaneous things that come up and no it could be a good interruption uh, but it very well may not be a good interruption and that was helpful i actually just got down to my calendar of really planning out he says you know get your calendar he reviews his calendar once a week and actually goes back and says you know how is that done i tried to do that for a while and i was more diligent about it i've kind of lost track of that part but it was very helpful to say, okay, here's a plan. Here We know what we're going to do this week. We know what we're going to do this next month. We've got to say no to that because look at these other things that are going on. A lot of communication with my wife as we're kind of charting these things out. But that reduced chapter was particularly helpful for me. Yeah, uh, the refuel chapter was helpful for me as well, um, especially he talks about exercise, sleep, and diet. Uh, one of the things that's just a fact of life for me, I don't know how – to uh, completely measure it or attribute it, but the older that I've gotten, the the less resilient I am, and the longer it takes me to recover. And that's true for preaching. It's true for counseling. It's true for just any of the the normal ongoing um, responsibilities of pastoral ministry. And to not take note of that is to just set yourself up for a hard crash and I was have been there and have gone through that and had to recover from it. And so just trying to build in rhythms of my life for rest and recognizing that rest is a very spiritual thing to do. It's a right mm-hmm. thing to do. It's a daily reminder. I'm not God and that I need to sleep. He never sleeps. And so the world goes on. He will carry on uh, every night while I'm asleep. He continues to do his work very well. And when I die, he's going to continue to do his work very mm-hmm. well. So there's a, there's a helpful um, movement and encouragement toward humility in just acknowledging the need for rest, but also eating, w- w- refuel with uh, what kinds of foods to eat. I don't need as much food. I don't need as many calories today as when I was 30. Mm. And that was also a, a real 
mind shift for me that took a while to kick in to realize, okay, I can do with fewer calories than I used to do, and I ought to do that, and I ought to be uh, very thoughtful about what food I put in my mouth. So that's it's been helpful. The whole book's been helpful, and uh, I'm grateful that David wrote it. He he wrote it out of a crisis in his own life mm. when blood clots, blood clots were discovered, I think, in his lungs, and he's sitting at this doctor's office, and the doctor says, I got some hard news for you, and he's wondering what in the world's going on, and, and it was through that whole experience that God directed him to start thinking about these things, going back to the scriptures, learning from the uh, common wisdom that God's put in the world in writing this book. Yeah, this is a good book for for everyone, I would commend it especially to pastors. Amen. Because you've got these responsibilities. If you're married, you have a wife that you know you have responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect. And you have a church, and there's not a day of the week that you couldn't do more for your wife, not a day of the week that you couldn't do more for your congregation. And uh, it is a tendency to uh, burn out. Um, it's also a position in which you can be lazy. So you got yeah, these right. dangers to right. the, the need to get into this grace-paced life uh, is, is a great need for those in ministry. So we commend this book to you. In this third part of our podcast today, we are on... The Ninth Commandment, looking at where it was violated or commended before Mount Sinai. What we're doing is going through the Ten Commandments and showing that these commandments are a summary of God's moral law. It's what's always been right. God didn't just invent this morality at Sinai. And so the Ninth Commandment tells us, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus twenty sixteen. 16. Uh, was false witness born against people before Mount Sinai? Yeah, Genesis 3, mm. when the devil comes to Eve and says, did God really say, and begins to cast aspersions upon the integrity of God? And you know, God knows that you won't die. You won't die. I mean, it's a lie. It's bearing false witness. You're going to be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. God's holding something back from you. Mm. So in the very uh, first sin, we see the mechanism of temptation was a violation of this ninth commandment. Cain killed his brother Abel, and when God came along and said, uh, where is your brother? Uh, Cain's response was, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) And uh, that is bearing false witness. He knew exactly uh, where Abel was. And then you hear the curse that comes uh, as a result of uh, not only Cain's sin of murdering his brother, but also his sin of bearing false witness about the truth. These things are important because what God's doing at Sinai is taking his Ten Commandments and covenanting with Israel for particular blessings if they keep his law. Um, but it does not follow that the eternal moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments is therefore only for Israel. I got to tell you a story about this. Okay. I was I was making this point to my children just the other day as we're sitting around the dinner table and I'm looking at them and I said, well, for example, kids, uh, let's pretend that I'm God 
and they all look at me, of course, with <laughs> open mouth, like they're about to stone me, which I was glad they're rest. I'm not God, but let's pretend I am God, and you're all my creatures, and I make you all, and I tell you, you got to obey the Ten Commandments. you got to obey my law. You're my creatures, and there it goes. And they're all like, okay, they're tracking so far. And I look at my, my second daughter, and her name is Scarlett, and she's uh, seven years old. And I said, but I come to Scarlett, and I say, if you, little deer, obey my law, then I'm going to give you a whole batch of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> she looks at me, with, you know, kind of strange and with a little bit of excitement. And um, I said, well, we do this. And if Scarlett doesn't keep my law, then I don't give her her cookies. And uh, if I say, well, you know, that deal's over because you broke the law. I'm not going to give you any more cookies. It doesn't follow there that everyone here gets to disobey my commands, you know. And they were all like, oh, I get it. You know, no, we still need to obey the commands. It's just a special agreement, special covenant with Scarlett's gone. And she looks at me and goes, but if I keep it, you've got to keep your promise. <laughs> ah, that's so good. I said, yeah, I almost lost a batch of cookies to Scarlet because right. I was trying to explain these things it's to It's worth a batch of cookies to teach your children good covenant theology. Mm, amen. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org. Founders.org.